the kids our question this week, if you get our illustration going here, is kids, do any of you like to go on vacation? Just a few here. None, okay, a few, all right, more hands are coming up now. So you like to go on vacation, right? Do you like to go on the car ride to vacation? Hands go down. Oh, we got a few people that like the car ride. Judd likes the car ride. Not many hands are up at this point. The car ride is not the most fun part about vacation, right? And it's amazing how all the excitement and anticipation of vacation, as soon as you get in the car and you're about 10 minutes down the road, all of that joy and happiness and anticipation goes out the window, right? What often happens on the car ride, kids? What are some of the things that are said and talked about? Come on, I know you know. Vacation. vacation, okay, so you talk about vacation, all right. That takes a few minutes, but then what happens on the car ride? What's that? Fun things? Okay, they, they have a different kind of car ride than I have on vacation. That's a great thing. Fun parents there. I don't know how they do that. But any other kids, what happens... Whenever you're on the car ride, the long car ride to vacation, is there any fighting? Is there any complaining? Kids, have you ever said, are we there yet? <laughs> like, whenever you're only five minutes down the road? Are we there yet? I have to go to the bathroom. He hit me. Does this, adults, I know you remember this. Right, and we all just are filled with joy and gratitude to the Lord for the invention of the portable DVD player, right? It has saved our lives, you know. Plug them in. Turn them into zombies for the car ride, you know. Car rides are hard. It's actually the worst part of vacation, right? Well, as we come to the book of Exodus, especially at chapter 16 and on, it's like we're joining the Israelites on a long car ride. And the Israelites are like the bratty little kids that are demanding and are saying, are we there yet? And they're complaining every five minutes. You know, in fact, the book of Exodus is like a car ride. It's a journey. It's a pilgrimage. The whole story in the book of Exodus is we've seen, and up until this point, we've seen God come to His people in Exodus, they're in slavery. God comes to them and says, I'm going to rescue you. And then in the most dramatic way, he rescues them out of Egypt through the blood of a lamb and then through the parting of the sea. And they become his people and they're finally out of Egypt. They pulled out of the driveway of Egypt. But they're not home. The whole book of Exodus, the majority of the book, is about their journey to a place. God did not just come and rescue them out of Egypt and say, okay, we're good, see you later. He rescued them out of Egypt for something. He rescued them out of Egypt in order to take them to a particular place, Canaan. And so the, entire, the majority of the book of Exodus is about their journey from Egypt to Canaan. And the journey is right smack dab through the wilderness. God does not take them on a direct route from Egypt to the promised land, to Canaan. In fact, he doesn't take them north, he turns them directly south. 
and takes them right into the heart of the wilderness. And you know, in the wilderness, things are hard. It's dry, it's hungry, it's difficult, it's hard traveling. There's many difficulties and hard circumstances and challenges that they will walk through, and that is exactly God's purposes for His people. You see, the journey is not just the in-between. It's not just the sideshow to get to the place. It is actually the place of God's preparing His people for Canaan. You see, the wilderness was God's purpose for them. And as He would take them through the wilderness, as He would take them through hardship, as He would take them through difficulty, He would be preparing His people to inherit Canaan to enter into the promised land because God uses the circumstances, the hard circumstances in your life. They are not some mistake. They're not by accident. They're not just from the devil. They are God's plan for your life. No matter how hard, no matter how challenging, no matter how confusing they might be, the suffering in your life, God has specifically designed it for you in order that through it you might know Him more. It is crucial to see that God takes His people right through the wilderness. And He tests their hearts. You see, for us as New Testament people, as followers of Jesus, the book of Exodus, as we've seen over and over and over, is a paradigm for our life. This is our story. It's a picture of salvation in Christ. For how through Jesus, the true Lamb of God, God rescues us from the slavery of sin, from the bondage of this world. It's a paradigm for us. We have been liberated from the Egypt of this world, if you belong to Jesus, and yet we're not home. We are journeying to a particular place. We're like a pilgrim people. We're like the Israelites in that we have left this world, but yet we are not yet in the promised land. We're making our way to a particular place, to the new heavens and the new earth. We are not at home. This this world is not our home. And this life is very much like the wilderness. Now, very often as we encounter, particularly as believers and, and followers of Jesus, as we encounter hardships in our life, very often, especially in our culture of affluence, we're shocked and disturbed by hardship, by suffering. Do you ever have that reaction? When you meet hard things in your life, you're surprised? Maybe I did something wrong. Maybe I sinned in some particular way, and so God is punishing me. And we fail to see that the hardship, the difficulty, is right at the center of God's plan for our life. Because just like them, God is preparing us, refining us, changing us, preparing us for the new heavens and the new earth. So we're not home. We're journeying through this world. This world is not our home, but yet... We are anticipating a home, a future home, a future kingdom. And so as we look at the Israelites in the book of Exodus, this is a tremendous picture and paradigm for us of how we are to live in this world, of people who are not yet home. As we come to the passage today and we recognize that now here they are on their journey and things are hard in the wilderness, we see right off, that the Israelites, whom we've just seen, you remember whenever they were rescued at the Red Sea and on the shores of the Red Sea, after they had seen God dramatically save them, what did they do? They worshipped. 
They had seen God's dramatic power and rescue of them in destroying their enemy, the Egyptians, right before their eyes, and they are moved to worship. And they're at their best in that moment, right? They believe, finally. They worship, they dance, they sing, they celebrate. Finally, their hearts are filled with the Lord. But it doesn't take too long for things to go south. Gratitude will not be a strong suit of the Israelites. Almost immediately, as they move from the shores of the Red Sea and they begin to encounter hardship, they begin to grumble. Did you see that in our passage? Right off the bat. Here they are traveling on the way. In verse 2, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, now get this. Get this response. This is comical. I mean, really, it's, it ought to make us laugh whenever we think about what they're saying here. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. We had it made in Egypt. There in Egypt, we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the meat we wanted. Now, I don't know about you, but that actually sounds pretty wonderful to me. I like meat. So the idea and the concept of a pot of meat is kind of appealing. Maybe I'm a little strained. It makes me think I've gone to dinner at Jeff McBriar's house or something. He's a fellow meat lover. But as they remember Egypt, they say, boy, it was wonderful back there. We ate steak seven nights a week. It was wonderful. We always had our fill. We had it made in Egypt. Now, do you remember what was happening in Egypt? Because they've forgotten. It's gone. It's out of the memory. Do you remember what Egypt was like? They were slaves. They were slave laborers. They were in a refugee camp. They were beaten. They were forced to hard labor. Constant hardship. They didn't sit around pots of meat. They had to labor for every bite of bread. It was horrible. But do you see how distorted their memory is? What's begun to happen to the Israelites? They have begun to believe a lie. They have begun to believe the lie that things back in Egypt, well, they were wonderful. They were great. But now, now it's all bad and there's no hope. They've given themselves over to unbelief. And you know, the na- this is actually the nature of temptation. I know that we all know what temptation is like. The nature of temptation is to enhance the pleasure of sin and to minimize the cost of it. Do you have that, ever have that experience in your life? As you're being tempted, the payoff of what you're being tempted to do, well, it seems so good. But the cost, what well, tends to be just kind of hidden. It's a tremendous picture of what's happening in the Israelites. They are believing a lie about their past. They're believing a lie about Egypt, and they're actually believing a lie about God Himself. But it's not only that. As we see over and over and over throughout the passage, their response here is described as grumbling. Did you notice that as we're reading through the passage? It's like repeating it over and over and over and over. The Israelites grumbled. The Israelites grumbled. And as Moses says to the Israelites here, hey, I need you to understand something, Israelites. You're not grumbling against me, you see. You're actually grumbling against the Lord. You're grumbling against the Lord. And what is beneath this grumbling? It's a demanding spirit. Can you see that? What's below that is a spirit that says, God, you're not providing for me 
in the way that I expect, in the manner that I expect, and in the timing that I expect. In, in their grumbling, what they've actually done is lowered God and elevated themselves above Him. Because who can make demands? Only those who are in authority. So what's happened in the Israelites' heart is that God has been lowered, they have been exalted, and they begin to make demands on the Lord. They begin to accuse the Lord and say, you know what? You're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're not providing for us in the way that we expect. Do you see the demanding spirit deep in their hearts? Now, to be honest, as we think about the Israelites, part of us might say, well, come on a little bit. I mean, they had it kind of hard, right? I mean, if we think about the reality of what they're going through, the Israelites, we're talking about a couple hundred thousand people. They're liberated out of Egypt, and now they're walking through the desert like entire families. So we're talking about everyone from the elderly all the way down to infants and children. Now, I cannot imagine carrying my four kids and walking through the wilderness for 40 years, okay? I'd be a little upset myself. So to be quite honest... The wilderness was hard, and that was by God's intention. But here's the thing. Very easily, we tend to think that our circumstances cause our response. It would be easy to say that the reason that the Israelites are responding in this way is because they had it so hard, because so often we think our circumstances cause us to react in ways that we actually do. But that's never the case. You see, the reality is our circumstances reveal what's truly in our hearts. Let me give you an illustration. If I'm in traffic, I don't like traffic. If I'm sitting in traffic, I never make it in Atlanta. If I'm sitting in traffic, it's very easy for me to think that the veins that are bulging on my head, the hollering I'm doing to fellow motorists around me, the, you know, do you ever sit in there in traffic and one lane's moving faster and you're like, you're trying to get over and you're mad that this one car is getting ahead of you and you want to get up and get ahead of them. All this stuff's happening in me. I'm filled with bitterness and anger and I just want to scream at somebody. And it's very easy to think in that moment, this traffic is causing my response. This traffic is making me mad. That's not true. You see, what traffic has actually done is revealed what's already in my heart. Because whenever I'm driving through Trenton, Ain't no traffic here. I can be cruising along, the wind's in my hair, arms out the window. I can be like, I'm such a benevolent motorist here. I just like to wave at people and see people, see people go about their way. I'm such a kind and gentle and warm person. See, very often, whenever we're comfortable, we think we're pretty good people. But it's only whenever hardship comes into our life that we get introduced to ourselves. Do you see that? The traffic doesn't make me an angry person. It only shows me how much of an angry person I really am. It only shows me how deep my demanding spirit goes. How deep I expect everyone else on the road to get out of my way because Hutch is coming through. Right? Our circumstances reveal what's in our hearts. And as we think about it, and as we look at the Israelites... We are so much like them. How much do you grumble? I know your circumstances are difficult. We're all in the wilderness. That's a given. 
for every one of us, we are facing hard things in our life. Now, you might be in a season where it's not just unbearable, but some of us are. And when you walk through difficult circumstances, what is the response so often in your heart? Do you grumble? Do you become bitter and angry and blame? Find people to blame, become angry at other people. It's their fault. How do we respond in those times? Is it not like the Israelites? Because in all of our complaining, and if you can't identify your own complaining, ask the person who's closest to you in your life, do I ever complain? But as Moses shows us here, our complaining and our grumbling is not just about, against other people. It's ultimately against the Lord. You ever look back on your life whenever you were in the world? If you're a follower of Christ, you ever look back to a previous season in your life where you just had given yourself to the pleasures of sin without even worrying about it? Do you look back to those times and be like, maybe in your more honest moments, man, that was kind of nice. Just doing what I wanted to do. No consequences. Man, that was pretty good. You ever have that? I do. I'll just start out. I can look back on the world, on my time in Egypt, and be like, man, that was good. That was good, but it's so hard now. See, we can, just like the Israelites, have a selective memory. We can so easily enhance the payoff and pleasure of sin and minimize its cost and its death. We're so much like them. As we're honest, and I think seeing the Israelites invites us to honesty. As we become honest before the Lord, I think it highlights God's response of grace in the passage. Look at what he says in verse 4. So you've just seen the Israelites at their worst. We've just seen their dirty diaper, and it stinks. But look at how God responds. Verse 4. Then the Lord says to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. What? They have just accused God to his face and told him how pitiful his precision is. And his response, I will provide manna for you. I will rain down bread from heaven. Look at what he says in verse 11. Uh, verse 12. I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening, quail came down and covered the camp. And in the morning, there was a layer of dew around the camp that became manna. Does that strike you as incredible? We've seen the Israelites at their worst, and yet God's response is not to strike them, but rather to provide for them in grace. Isn't that a little incredible? God's response is to say, I will feed you. And just miraculously, he brings quail in the evening. An east wind drives a flock of quail every evening into their camp. And in the morning, manna forms on the desert floor. And it happened every day for 40 years. Incredible. It's God's gracious provision for his people. What's he up to in this? He's teaching his people to depend upon him. That's what it's about. He's teaching his people dependence. He's showing them that He is their provider. He's showing them that I will take care of you. I will meet your needs. All you have to do is trust me. I will feed you 
miraculously from my own hand to show you I am your God. I will be there for you. But then also we notice a few things about the provision. There were a few particular instructions in there. It was actually a test to see what was in their heart. Now a test in Scripture is, is kind of like a, a revealing kind of test. And that's kind of how we do tests. We give tests to know what you really know or to determine what is really the quality and character of a heart or what someone knows. We apply a test. Well, God does the same thing. He brings the hardship to bring a test. And even in the instruction of the manna, it's a test to see, will they depend upon me? And so here were the instructions. You were to go out and gather just what you needed for that day. Don't try to store it up and accumulate it. And then the Sabbath uh, instructions. On the sixth day, they were to go out and gather twice as much. And then on the Sabbath, they were not to go out. They were to rest. They were to remain there. Why did God do that? He did it in order to show them, I will provide for you every day. You don't have to store up. You don't have to work every single day. I want you to rest. Resting is a tremendous picture of faith. To just knock off. To just allow Him to provide it. But yet the Israelites couldn't do it. They had to go. They had to accumulate. They had to go out on the seventh day. They had to try to work. Why? Because they did not want to depend. Independence was so deep in their heart. They would not be at that place where they would simply rely on God to provide their daily bread, what they needed for that day. That independence was so deep in their heart. They resisted dependence upon the Lord. And the same really is true for us. God provides what we need when we need. But has there ever been a culture that, more is, that is more resistant to rest than our own today? I mean, we are constantly working. We're constantly connected. We're constantly checking our email. We're constantly trying to figure out another way to make more money and to accumulate. I mean, we are in a culture of consumerism. And we're constantly saying, more, 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 more. We cannot stop working. Has there ever been a culture where resting on the Sabbath is more hard? Because if you're going to rest, it has to mean that you believe that God is still at work. And if I'm not working on one day, I've got to believe that God is going to provide what I need. You see, it's a test of dependence. But we are so bent on independence, are we not? And we see it in our incessant working. Dependence is so very hard for us, just like the Israelites. So we see the Israelites, as we go through the book of Exodus and step back and see the big picture, we see there's a major problem here. You see, God's plan is to rescue them out of Egypt, to change and transform their character in the wilderness, and bring them into the promised land, but there's a major problem here. And it sticks out like a sore thumb. You know what it is? You can take the Israelite out of Egypt, but you can't take Egypt out of the Israelite. You see that? Their problem is a heart problem. They had come out of Egypt. They had been physically taken out of Egypt. Their circumstances had been fixed, but Egypt was still in their hearts. It's the whole problem. The whole problem was their desires, is that they wanted the wrong things. And the same is true with us. But God knew. 
God knew even then this is going to take something far bigger than manna. God knew that he would have to provide in a way that manna would only be a small picture. And in the book of John chapter 6, it's this amazing part where Jesus basically in speaking to a group of descendants of the Israelites here, says, hey, you know that manna thing that's a part of your story that was provision for your forefathers? Yeah, that whole thing, it's about me. Jesus says the manna was a way of pointing towards him. He is a fulfillment of the manna. And he says to them, I am the true bread that has come down from heaven and gives life to the world. Your forefathers, they ate the manna in the desert, and you know what? They died. There was a problem. They did not need just physical bread. They needed deep, eternal life. They needed new hearts, and God always knew that. And so he has sent me down. I am the true bread from heaven. That's what he says. It's amazing. They ate bread. They ate manna in the desert, and they died, but I've come that you may know life. Hear what he says directly here. I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Amazing. Jesus is saying the whole experiment of manna was appointing to me, but I am the bread of life. I am the only source of life. I am the only one who can cure your hearts. I'm the only one who can give you a new heart. I am the only one who can give you life because the reality is we have the same problem as the Israelites. And it's a broken heart. It's sinful hearts. And Jesus gives life in this way. He dies in our place. The only way to give us new hearts the only way to give us new life is to take the curse of sin off of us and upon himself on the cross. He is the bread of life. And we have life as we embrace him. He says some remarkable things there. You must eat of me. You must eat my flesh. In fact, in the very next paragraph, he says, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood. And most of the people there listening says, that's too much for us. We're out of here. What's he talking about? He's talking about faith. But he's describing faith in a different way that we might normally think. We think of faith as like just facts to know in your head, but that's not the faith he's talking about. We think about faith as just simply a decision I made at one point in my life. That's not the faith he's talking about. We think about faith as like believing God is going to provide something specific for my life, but that's not the faith he's talking about. The faith he's talking about is a full-hearted embracing of Jesus deep in your soul. He's talking about feeding upon him by faith, looking to him for your source of life, looking to him for fulfillment and satisfaction, looking for him for the deep cravings of your soul. He describes it in the most intimate terms that through faith we might know him in the depths of our soul that you can describe it as eating and drinking of him. Remarkable picture. So, let's finish by applying it to us. So what does this mean for us in our everyday life, Monday through Saturday? Well, I think this. I think here's the central question for us to ask. 
What do you look to for life? What are the things that you run after in your life for satisfaction, for fulfillment, for joy, for meaning, and for purpose? You see, that's an incredibly practical question, right? What do you run after for life? What gives you life? Now, it's not all that hard to answer that question if you step back and look at your life. What are the things that I run after? What are the things that I set my identity in? What are those things that whenever they're threatened, I become deeply anxious and afraid and angry? Or what are those things that whenever I get it, it fills me with most joy and life? Where do your idle thoughts go? Where does your money go? It's a great way to determine what do you look to for life because our money will always flow in that direction. And as we begin to ask these searching questions of ourselves, we will find that much of the time we are looking to all kinds of different things for life, like the approval of people, reputation, success, our children. It's a big one for us, our children. Living life vicariously through them for many of us. We look to homes or or a, a job, or a career, or vacation, or toys, or hobbies. Literally, we could go on all day because we can make an idol out of almost anything. But you, what, you see what Jesus is saying here? I am life, as opposed to all of those things. I am the source of life. Like as in you come to Him, and you find the fulfillment of your deepest longings, the kind of things that we chase after all those things, to fulfill, Jesus says, I'm the only one who will fully and most deeply satisfy your longings. See, most of the time, Jesus is just a means to an end for us. Most of the time, we go to Jesus in order to get something else. We come to God with our list of demands, our list of requests, and primarily the depth of our relationship with God is, I need you to fix this area of my life because we think what we most need is our circumstances to be fixed. But whenever we relate to Jesus in that way, He is only a means to an end. But what Jesus is saying is, I am the end itself. And until you see that, He will not change you. You will not be fully satisfied. So I know for some of us, we might think about that and say, that, that, how do I know that? How do I know that Jesus is, is that satisfying and fulfilling? It's almost like saying something from outer space because all the other things in our life, like we can touch them, we can feel them, we can see them, and that's why they so easily capture our hearts. How can we then go from this being so real to me to Jesus being the ultimate treasure in my life? And I would say this, you've got to feed on Him to know. You've got to taste and see in order to know His goodness, His beauty, how satisfying He is. That's the only way. You can't know it before time and then go experience it. You've got to, ex you've got to pursue it. You've got to eat. You've got to feed. You've got to pursue and seek His face in His Word, in prayer, face to face with Him in order to begin to know how satisfying He is. And here's the experience. As you begin to feed upon Him, you begin to become more hungry for Him and more hungry for Him. And He begins to satisfy you more and more and more. And all of a sudden, 
the beauty of Christ begins to outweigh everything else in your life.